we are going to be in Genesis uh, 30 and perhaps 31, 32, 33. Genesis 30 and 31, we have a very interesting story before us, and we're going to try to piece this together. There are a lot of elements to it, and I, I want to bring it to you best that I can. Um, but we're going to take a little piece of the story, one of the stranger elements here, and we'll look at that first, and again, we'll, we'll see where the Lord takes all this. So Genesis chapter 30, pick it up in verse 37, Genesis 30, 37, and check this out. Then Jacob took fresh rods of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white stripes in them, exposing the white which was in the rods. And he set the rods which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the gutters, even the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink and they mated when they came to drink. So the flocks mated by the rods and the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. And he put his own herds apart and he did not put them with Laban's flock. Moreover, whenever the stronger of the flock were mating, Jacob placed the rods in the sight of the flock in the gutters so that they might mate by the rods. And when the flock was feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. <laughs> what? Are you serious? I mean, it's one of the stranger things that we have come across in the scriptures thus far, but I wanna show you something equally strange. Turn over to Luke chapter 16 in your Bibles, Luke 16. And as you turn there, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us insight and help us, Lord Jesus, to understand your word this morning to us and to know what it is you want us to take away from this study. We recognize the history we recognize the truth of what took place. What we want to recognize is why you included this in scripture and why it's important for us to understand. So, Rabbi Jesus, we're all ears. In Jesus' name, amen. In Luke 16, we come to one of Jesus' most intriguing parables. I mean, this is, this is an upsetting one, actually, for some people. They read this and they think, how, how can this be? Let me, let me show you what I mean. Verse one of Luke 16. He was also saying to the disciples. Now, I want you to note something real quickly here. Side note, when Jesus teaches, always note when he's teaching his disciples versus when he's teaching the multitudes because he does it differently. He'll say things to the multitudes, but when he has the disciples alone, he says things, and I believe part of that is there's understanding on his part. He knows the disciples at least should have some faith or some understanding that will be different than the masses. So he'll say things with an expectation in heart that they're gonna get this. So he's speaking to the disciples and he says there was a rich man who had a manager and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management for you can no longer be manager. In other words, you're fired, you're gone. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. 
I know what I shall do so that when I'm removed from the management, uh, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill quickly and, or take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, take your bill and write 80. What is going on here? What's he doing? This manager, this unrighteous manager, this squandering manager, now is going to all the people who owe his master money, and before he's sacked, before they know he's sacked, while he's still under the authority to do it, he's reducing their bills. He's bringing down what they owe so that when he does get fired, he can go, remember when I cut you some slack there? Oh yeah, come have dinner with us. He's covering for himself so that the people will pay less than they actually owe. We read this, and there are some people who say, how can Jesus use such sneaky, underhanded behavior as an example for his followers? What's going on here? First of all, remember, this is not a real-life situation. It's a parable. It's a story. A parable is where a truth, a mystery is thrown alongside a truth so that we can understand the truth better. So he's, he's giving a story, and in the story, note this, he's not praising the behavior. He's pointing out the shrewdness of the manager. In verse eight, Jesus says his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. We're going, hey, what are you saying, buy friends? What are you saying, pay off people for for faith? I I don't understand, Jesus. Jesus is saying, be prepared for that which is eternal. Jesus is saying, hey, all wealth is unrighteous wealth. I mean, wealth is not gonna, you can't buy your way into heaven. It's really not worth a whole lot other than what it can do right now. So use your wealth for the kingdom. Use your wealth in such a way that you can lead people to Jesus. Be shrewd, he's saying. Be wise. And Jesus, after saying the wealth of unrighteousness is cold, hard cash, can be used with eternity in mind because the cash is not gonna last and the stuff we buy on this earth is not gonna last. But how we use it to encourage or help or serve other people, that can last eternally. So use it that way with that kind of thinking. But then Jesus actually goes back to the fact that this manager was an unrighteous squanderer who was also shrewd. He says in verse 10, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? If you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, but you can use wealth to serve God. But the bottom line here in this interesting, intriguing parable is Jesus is saying, be shrewd. Be shrewd. It's not a word we often equate with Christianity. We think meekness. We think humility. You know, we think roll over. We think turn the other cheek. 
and shrewd. That, that's what the world does. No, Jesus says, no, you are to be shrewd. I want you to keep that in mind because as we go back to the story of Jacob, he will prove to be a shrewd shepherd. He's been in the service of his uncle Laban for 14 years now. If you turn back to Genesis 30, 14 years, seven years for Rachel, but was given Leah, and then another seven years to get Rachel, who he thought he was getting in the first place. So now he's got two wives, Rachel and Leah. We talked about them on Wednesday night, looked at that story, a funny story in some ways, but also curious as to the way Laban, his uncle, deceived Jacob. But Leah and Rachel, they brought along their maids, Zilpah and Bilhah. So now he's got four women in his house, and because of all the infighting between the women and the desire of all of them to have children, now Jacob has slept with all four of them and has had all manner of children. He's got 11 sons. He's got one daughter, daughter named Dinah, who liked to blow her horn in the kitchen. Someone's in the kitchen with Dinah. I don't know who. But Dinah will come back into play in chapter 34. There's a story related to her, and we'll talk about her when we get to that. But eventually, Jacob is going to have 12 sons and 21 daughters in all. Genesis 46, 15 gives that numbering for us. You can look that up if you'd like. But now, with all this family growing and all this responsibility for his own, Jacob's ready to go home. He just wants to go home. Remember, he's been in... Aramean Syria, the region of Haran. He's outside of the promised land. And the promised land will never, I mean, even there, Jacob will always, like Isaac before him, like Abraham before him, he'll always be a sojourner, but the land, that's, that's home to him. Remember what God said? Genesis 28, 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. He said to him in that place called Bethel, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. He knows God's gonna bring him back and now Jacob is ready to go home to his homeland in Canaan. And again, he will continue to be a sojourner, but a sojourner in the land, verse 27. Or I'm sorry, verse 25. Now it came about when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children which whom I for whom I have served you, and let me depart, for you yourself know my service, which I have rendered to you. We're legit, we're done, 14 years. I've, I've done everything I said I would do. But Laban, verse 27, said to him, now, it pleases you, if now it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. He continued, name your wages and I will give it. Laban sees a good thing and doesn't want to let it go. See, in the 14 years that Jacob's been there, Laban has been incredibly blessed, overwhelmingly blessed. His flocks, his herds have expanded. His, his reach has gone greater. His wealth has, has, has risen, and he sees Jacob. This is a get-it-done guy. I don't want to lose this. So name your wages. Stay on. I, I, I want you to, to be here and to continue doing what you've been doing. But notice this about Laban. He has what I would call a pagan presumption, a pagan presumption. Yes, he names the Lord. The Lord has blessed me on your account. He uses the name Yahweh, no doubt because he's heard it from Jacob, the Lord. But the Lord is not Laban's Lord. 
Laban is a pagan. So he names him here, but he also uses the word, note this, I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. I have divined it. What does that mean? I'm gonna divide this teaching into two parts this morning, and part one is serpentine superstition. Serpentine superstition. The word divined is nachashti, and nachashti means to practice divination, to interpret by omens and signs, to read fortunes, it's palm reading, it's tea leaves, it's all the rest. That's what nachashti means, and that's the word he used. I have nachashtied and realized that the Lord has blessed me. Interesting. Back in 1973, Stevie Wonder was very superstitious. Actually, he wasn't, but he wrote the song, Superstition. I'm sure you've heard it. And in the song, he says, very superstitious, writing on the wall. Very superstitious, ladders about to fall. 13-month-old baby broke the looking glass. Seven years of bad luck, good things in your past. And then the chorus says, and I find this really interesting, when you believe in things that you don't understand, then you suffer. Superstition ain't the way. It's a good song. And whether Laban here is reading tea leaves, I have divined, or he's just using colloquial language, it exposes his heart. It reveals where he's coming from, but worse than that, it diminishes the credit, no, it diminishes the glory that should go to God. I have divined this. It takes eyes off the source. Please understand, I have divined is pagan dissuasion. It denies the source of blessing. And we do that. Christians in this culture, we do that. Every time we say something like, wow, I'm so lucky. Really? Are you lucky or are you blessed? If I'm lucky, I'm assuming luck had something to do with it. If I say something like, if the fates allow, have yourself a merry little Christmas is one of my favorite Christmas songs, but I hate that line and I always loudly sing, if the Lord allows, <laughs> because it's not fates, no such thing. It's not happenstance, it's not luck. The universe is not smiling down on you. The universe is just the universe. God is the creator. God is over all. And Jesus said he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. This morning was the morning that the sun comes through the window. It happens every year at this time and beams in my face. We recorded first service. We're, we're having to record second service because first service, the beaming, beaming in my face, Jason tells me it was so hideous and so frightening we cannot put that online. He said, you went from being a normal guy to being this ghost. But he causes the sun to shine, and that's a blessing, the blessing of the sun. How many of you got up this morning and went, oh, wow, beautiful, thank you, Jesus, as opposed to, boy, what a lucky day. How sad that we are so used to using that kind of language, we don't even think about it. It denies the glory that should go to God. What a blessed day. How blessed we are by the Lord. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, James 1:17. If it's good, it's from God. If it's a blessing, it's from him. Ain't no such thing as luck. 
Superstition ain't the way. Because even that kind of talk, man, it feeds fear. It frustrates faith. It fosters futility. And mark my words on this, in days like these, superstition will offer no one any comfort. You're not gonna be comforted by thinking perhaps the universe has a plan here. That's terrifying. That's empty. That's void. That's not truth. God has a plan here. The Lord's at work here. Do you know? Do you realize? God knew coronavirus was coming when he created the world. He's not surprised by this. He's not shocked. He's not caught off guard. He knew exactly what was coming. He has seen everything before it's taken place. He knows what he's doing. So when we put our faith in him, we don't divine things. We say, thank you, Lord. We pray over things. We seek his face. And eventually, God forbade Nahashti in Israel completely. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, just listen to this. I'll read it to you. He says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. Listen to the first one. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. And you know what I wonder? In all the counting of lives lost, and it is tragic, who's counting the number of infants whose lives have been lost in abortion in this country? And yet that's the very first thing God said, you shall not do this. He goes on, and the, very, and the second thing is, you shall not be one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, one who interprets omens or a sorcerer or one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. It's called necromancy. For one who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. Why? Is God just giving an arbitrary rule, witches are bad and you know, can't do the divination thing and don't you dare buy a Ouija board? Is God just saying generically, I just, I'm, I'm deciding that's a bad thing? No, no. The issue is that takes eyes off God and puts it on something that can do nothing for you, that is not real, that is in fact demonic and a deception and a lie. Isaiah chapter eight, verse 19, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Which is by the way why we're praying on Wednesday. We need to be consulting our God in this season and every season. That's why we've called for a day of prayer. That's why I called all the shepherds yesterday morning, Saturday morning, you guys, would you be willing to meet here at the, at the church at 10 so we can talk about this and actually seek the Lord? And we gathered upstairs in the upper room. <laughs> I like having an upper room. But we gathered up there, and I said, I wanna talk about this, but before we say one word, let's just pray. And we spent about a half an hour, and we just prayed, and we just listened to the Lord, and we just asked him for his Leadership, for his guiding, for him to show us what we need to do. And by the way, that is not to cast dispersion on any other church or any other decision anyone else is making. We have a responsibility here. And so we're just saying, Lord, what do you want us to do? How are we to respond? Consult the Lord. Should not a people consult their God? Isaiah eight nineteen continuing says, should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? 
to the law, to the testimony, if they don't speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Not speaking according to this, they are speaking out of the darkness and not speaking with understanding, not speaking with clarity. But here's the real underlying issue. With this whole idea of divination, I have divined, nachashti, the root word of nachashti is nachash, which means serpent. Serpent, why? Because that's where divination comes from. It comes direct from the serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, Genesis chapter three, verse one. All pagan superstition, all of this divination, all of this necromancy, all these things the Lord calls out and says, you shall not do this, whether they're archaic or neo-paganism, these are devices of dissuasion to dissuade people from faith in God and they are devices of the demonic according to this word. They're demonic because they're of use by the serpent of old. Revelation 12, nine, who is called the devil and Satan. I find it interesting, I looked this up and, and Stevie Wonder's song continues, listen to this verse. Very superstitious, nothing more to say. Very superstitious, devil's on the way. When you believe in things that you don't understand, then you suffer. Superstition ain't the way. Paul put it this way. He said in 1 Corinthians 10, 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And we do when we embrace even silly, simple things like luck and fate and fortune in the universe, we deny the true source, which is the Lord our God. And we rely on human invention or demonic deception. Well, Laban's a pagan. So understanding that, he devises that he has been blessed. We understand is a whole lot more than that, the reason he's been blessed. In fact, it doesn't take serpentine divination to see the obvious. Verse 29, Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your cattle have fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased. Literally, it has broken forth. It has exploded to a multitude and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? I got wives and children. And after 14 years, I got nothing to show for it. I have nothing to support them with. Jacob has only received his family, but as far as pay, he's got nothing. So, so let me go so I can start making my own way in the world. He's 97 years old. <laughs> when he says, let me take my wives and kids and go home, he, just, he needs to get off Laban's greedy hook. He's been stuck there this long. He was deceived, which is why it's 14 instead of seven years. Laban's holding on tight. But note this, when Jacob came to town, Laban got blessed like crazy. Why? Listen, it's because the Abrahamic covenant is in play. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verse three, God said, I will bless those who bless you, Abraham, and then he repeats it to Isaac, and then he repeats it to Jacob. The Abrahamic covenant is God's faithful covenant that if someone blesses you in this line, in this heritage, as an heir of the covenant, if you are blessed by someone, I will bless them, God says. So he's been blessing Laban. It's not because of anything Laban did, and it's certainly not because of who Jacob was at heart. It was because God is faithful to his covenant. 
And I wanna encourage you with this. Do you realize that you are still a part of the Abrahamic covenant? See, the Abrahamic covenant is not the covenant of the law, the Mosaic covenant. That was for Israel. That was specific to time and place. That was added so that sin might increase, so that where sin increased, grace would increase all the more. That's why God brought the law. We're not under the law. But guess what? We are heirs of the Abrahamic covenant, which means when God says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you, he is talking to you. Where in the world do you get that, Rick? Christians, we need to understand something. Our faith is a blessing or a curse, depending on how people receive it. You know, Paul said we are, we are the sweet aroma of Christ. To some, we're the aroma of life, and others, we're the aroma of death. To some, we smell, we smell like life and salvation and hope, and they come and they wanna know, and to others, we smell like death because they're standing in flesh and in rebellion to God. We are still under part of, connected to the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12, two, you shall be a blessing, God said to Abraham, or literally, emphatically, you remember this? Be you a blessing. Be you a blessing. We need to stop thinking of our faith as something to shy away from sharing or something that causes contention or ooh, I don't wanna upset someone. Hey, if you don't share it, you are basically stealing the blessing rather than being a blessing. And you can be a blessing simply by sharing Jesus. Cheryl was doing that. I, I'm, I'm sorry to embarrass you, Cheryl, but I, I was, we're sitting there last night and she's texting with someone, I won't even say who, I'm not gonna uncover the situation, but texting with someone who is not certain about faith and life and, and isn't going to church anywhere and, and just saying, you know, she said, you know what, I just, I need to tell you this right now, that Jesus loves you. And Jesus cares about you. And the person responded, oh, oh I, know, I know all that, but, 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 you know. And I just, I just sat there and watched as, as very simply and very honestly in this relationship, Cheryl was just being a blessing. And the blessing is that this friend would come to faith, would be at least comforted in these words, be a blessing. And again, some might say, well, okay, but Rick, really? We're part of the Abrahamic covenant? You're telling me that I, I, are you extrapolating a bit here, Pastor Rick? Oh no, this is biblical. Galatians chapter three, verse 13 tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that, listen, in order that, the blessing, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And then in Galatians 3.29, Paul says, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Guess what? If you're an heir according to promise, then the Abrahamic covenant is yours and is mine. And I will bless those who bless you, says the Lord, and the one who curses you, I will curse. Go back and read Genesis 12. Read through the Abrahamic covenant because if you walk in the name of Jesus, that covenant extends to you and through you into the world right now, realized in Christ. Amazing. And there's a principle here that even as Jacob blessed the pagan Laban, so you can be a blessing to the non-believer if you will just simply live your life for Jesus. Just live for Jesus. You don't have to be super evangelist. You don't have to be the person knocking on the doors and, and bothering everybody at the coffee shop unless the Lord so leads you, unless that's your personality. Just live for Jesus and let him open the doors. 
Live for Jesus and let him spark conversation. Just walk in faith. Live in such a way that this fretting, frightened, hand-wringing world will see and understand. Because again, in days like these, superstition is worth nothing and will offer no comfort. But you can offer all kinds of comfort in the name of Jesus. Well, verse 31, so Laban said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. Let me pass through your entire flock today. Removing from there every speckled and spotted sheep and every black one among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats and such shall be my wages. He says, so my honesty, literally my righteousness will answer for me later when you come concerning my wages. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, will be considered stolen. Laban said, good, let it be according to your word. Why does he respond that way? Because Jacob makes an offer that is more than fair. Jacob, who has been taking care of shepherding the flocks now for 14 years, massive growth, growth and all the, the goats and the sheep, it's just these huge flocks, and, and it's because of Jacob. And Jacob says, listen, here's what I want. I want the animals with the recessive genes. Because in Israel, Middle Eastern sheep are white, usually. If they're speckled, if they're spotted, if they're black, they are recessive. They're in the minority. Goats in the Middle East are usually dark, black, dark brown or black, and so spotted and speckled goats are also recessive. They're not the norm. So what Jacob's doing is he's willing to start with the minimum. Are you? You know, I'm, I'm actually gonna speak to younger people, people just out of high school in your 20s, early in life, and you're considering life, and you're considering employment, and you're considering jobs. Are you willing to start with the minimum? Why would I do that? I wanna start big. No, no, just start with the minimum and trust the Lord. See, Jacob has learned something in faith right now that, hey, if I just, I don't need all the flocks, let's take the minimum. God will bless. God's been blessing me. I mean, 14 years, you think God's gonna bless him? Yeah, he's gonna bless me. So I will take the minimum and you take all the rest. Jacob knew God was with him so he could walk in righteousness. I will be right before you. That's his, my honesty, my righteousness will answer for me later. Now there are a couple little problems here, however, with the arrangement. Problem number one is that Jacob is involved with a pagan. He is connected to and working with and through a pagan. And my friends, non-believers do not do business the way believers are called to do business. Which is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them, I'll walk among them, I will be their God, they shall be my people. Now, that's often used, don't be unequally yoked, of marriage, right? I mean, I'm sure you've heard it applied there, and more often than not, that's where I've heard it applied in, in sermons, don't be unequally yoked, make sure if you're a believer you don't marry a non-believer. Okay, that's wise because that can be problematic, and if you've ever been in a, a marital relationship or are in a marital relationship where one believes and the other one doesn't, yeah, it's gonna cause conflict, guaranteed. 
Don't think, and I guess I'm saying this also to younger people who are not yet married, don't think you're gonna save them. We'll get married and then I will bring them to the Lord. Bad move. Bring them to the Lord and then get married, that's fine. But to be unequally yoked is gonna cause problems. But he's not talking about marriage. He's talking about business. Talking about partnerships in the world that can cause issues. The Labans of this world, again, are not gonna play by the rules of righteousness. They're gonna play by the rules of whatever I need to do to get ahead. They are going to be cunning. They are going to be shrewd. They are not gonna move by faith. I'm not casting dispersion. I'll tell you what, if I wasn't a believer, there are a lot of things I would do differently than how I do them. I would be a whole lot more underhanded. I would not be trustworthy. I would do what was best for me and for my family. Who cares about the rest of the world? Unless by being kind to people, I could get more out of them, then I would do that. You're probably looking at me going, man, Rick, you're depraved. No, I would be. I would be depraved without Jesus. But he calls us to a different way. And we need to be alert to that. Well, Jacob is aligning with Laban, and it's gonna come back to bite him. Laban is gonna cheat him. No big surprise there. Verse 35. So he removed that day the striped and spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats and everyone with white in it and all the black ones among the sheep and gave them into the care of his sons. And he put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob led the rest of Laban's flocks, and he's already started doing it. Do you realize what just happened? Laban removed all the sheep and goats with recessive genes, removed them from the flock so that they're not even there. In other words, the very minimum that Jacob was asking for, Laban removed. He took them out. And then he took them, gave them to his sons, and said, get three days away from here so that the flocks can't intermingle. And then he says, okay, shepherd my flock. So Jacob comes to shepherd the flock and there are no black sheep, there are no speckled or spotted sheep and there are no speckled or spotted goats. Just all the good ones. And he says, go for it. Jacob, for his part, wow, he was already willing to start off slim. Now he's got nothing to work with, but to his credit, he does it anyway, okay? And he goes out to the flocks. God was with Jacob. God was sanctifying Jacob, has been and will continue to sanctify Jacob. More on that in a second. But the problem here, Jacob's involved with the pagan, so we shouldn't be surprised when the pagan cheats him. Secondly, Jacob is himself influenced by the pagan culture. Verse 37, and that's where the story gets weird. Jacob took the fresh rods of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white stripes in them, exposing the white which was in the rods. He set the rods which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the gutters in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink and they mated when they came to drink. So the flocks mated by the rods and the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks all face toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban and he put his own herds apart and he did not put them with Laban's flocks. I, this is just what's going on. Are you kidding me? What he's doing here is what, well, let me put it this way. Every culture has its popular superstitions. This is what I call poplar superstition. Poplar, he's taking basically branches from poplar trees and almond trees and plane trees, which are common in Israel, in the Middle East, in that region, and he's taking these branches and he's cutting stripes in them. 
So there are white stripes throughout these branches. Then he's putting them in the watering trough, and as the animals come, which they do, they come to drink, and typically uh, the sheep will mate where they drink, you know, drink a water, look over, oh, she's kind of cute, all right. And so they'll mate at the troughs, and what Jacob is employing here is a little almondine alchemy, you know, a little plane tree paganism. As I said, poplar superstition. This is the idea. It's called prenatal influence. Do you realize that even until genetic research became more prevalent in our world, that prenatal influence was believed by people in very cultured countries like America? Joe Phillips was telling me, or no, it was, it was Karen was telling me that, that I believe it was her mother told her, believed in prenatal influence. That is, if you see something, if there's a vivid sight during conception or pregnancy, it's gonna leave its mark on the embryo. Which would tell me if you are pregnant, ladies, don't go to the zoo. <laughs> you have horrific, you know, outcome. But it was believed, if you saw things over and over, if you had something like this, and so Jacob's thinking, put striped branches in front of the sheep, when they come to see the stripes and they mate, they're gonna have striped kids. Prenatal influence. What's weird is not that Jacob does it. What's weird is it seems to work. <laughs> okay. Sounds like a fable, you know? Hans Christian Andersen couldn't have written this better. What's going on here? And of course, critics love to come to this passage. Critics of the Bible will say, see, see, this is how behind and backwards the Bible is. It is not scientific. And I say, hold on there, stick in the mud. There's more than me see I here. I'm gonna come back to the superstition in just a second, but let me bring you first to part two. Part two is what I call shrewd shepherding. Verse 41, moreover, when the stronger of the flock were mating, Jacob would place the rods in the side of the flock in the gutters so that they might mate by the rods. But when the flock was feeble, he did not put them in. That is, he didn't put the rods down. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger were Jacob's. So as Jacob saw this working, Putting the rods in seemed to have an effect and speckled and spotted sheep and black sheep were coming out of it and speckled and spotted goats. He kept doing that every time the animal was strong. But if it was a little runt, he didn't put them in. And as a result of his behavior, you've got speckled, spotted black sheep and speckled, spotted goats all over the place and they're strong and they're healthy and they're growing and they're multiplying and then you've got Laban's flock little white and the brown and the black, and they're little wimpy, pathetic things. And this is rolling on. <laughs> He's using this method. He's employing, regardless of anything else going on here, he is employing shrewd shepherding. Laban's ripped him off. Okay, I'm not gonna be a fool here. I'm not gonna be taken. I'm gonna walk out of here with strong sheep. And he puts two and two together, and man, he gets a multitude. Verse uh, 41, did I already read that? I already read that, shrewd shepherding. Verse 43, so the man became exceedingly prosperous, had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. So he's using this method, and he's coming out with a blessing. Now, Jesus people, listen. As we read in the parable at the beginning, Jesus advises us to be shrewd in this world. Not conniving, but clever. Okay, not deceitful, but discerning. Not manipulative, but 
resourceful, not superstitious, but shrewd. That shrewdness is of spiritual value. Again, Luke 16, verse eight, he says the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. You wonder, why is the church always behind the times? Why technically or technologically are we always kind of running to catch up? Why isn't the church on the cutting edge? Why isn't the church leading the world in intelligence and in science as we have in times past? We just kind of roll over. And Jesus says, look, just because you come to faith in me doesn't mean you come to idiocy. You're not called to be meek and a moron. You're, you're called to be wise. In fact, he even goes so far as to say, Matthew 10, 16, I send you out as sheep amidst wolves, so be shrewd as serpents. Wow. But, but, innocent as doves. Righteous, innocent, godly, and smart. And that's our call as followers of Jesus. Jacob is dealing with pagan Laban and he is shrewd in his dealings. Again, he's not being deceptive. He said, only the speckled, spotted, and black ones, those will be mine. I won't take any of the others. He's keeping his word, but at the same time, he's wise, prudent, clever, shrewd. Jacob is a shrewd shepherd. Okay, but how do we explain the poplar rods and this part of the story? Please understand, the Bible does this. The Bible will describe what happened. The Bible never sugarcoats history, what took place, what people did, how they acted. It's all here for your reading, for your awareness. The Bible doesn't come along and try and clean it up for us. And so this is, at one level, this is just what was taking place. This is what Jacob did, no question. But the thing the Bible never says is that it was the poplar rods working their mojo. It doesn't say that there was something in the rods that then, kaboom, it worked. Bible doesn't say that. It just says that Jacob placed these stripped rods before the flocks and the outcome was speckled, spotted, and black. And shrewdly, Jacob kept mating stronger sheep and goats this same way. But if you read on, you get more of the story. Verse one of chapter 31, now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what belonged to our father, he has made all this wealth. Laban's sons now are whining and complaining because they're watching their inheritance get weaker and weaker and weaker. Verse two, Jacob saw the attitude of Laban, and behold, it was not friendly toward him as before. <laughs> and the word friendly is added in by the translators. Literally, it says, the attitude of Laban changed. Whereas he was like, oh, Jacob, my son, come on in and take care of my flocks, and I'll give you my beautiful daughter, Leah. And I, oh, okay, we'll give you Rachel too. And he, he was, all of a sudden, Laban's not treating Jacob well. Something has changed there. And then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land. Turn to the land of your fathers and your relatives and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and he called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field and he said to them, I see your father's attitude that it is not toward me as formerly, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. Guess what? We didn't see that before. That Laban throughout, this is a six-year period of taking care of these flocks. As you find out over in verse 41, 
which says, for 14 years I worked for your two daughters and six years for your flock. So it's been six years here, and in the six years, Laban has been changing the deal. Laban has caused things to change. Uh, Jacob says, God did not allow him to hurt me, but if he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth striped. So what happened across this six years is they started out saying, speckled, spotted, striped, black, that's all yours, Jacob, that's fine. Well, then Laban started seeing the increase of all these sheep. So he said, uh, 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 no, 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 we're just gonna do striped, just the striped. Okay, and all of a sudden, all the striped sheep <laughs> were showing up. No, 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 we're not doing that anymore. Not speckled only. And all of a sudden, it's all speckled sheep. So Laban is trying to cheat Jacob, but God just keeps blessing him over and over, it just doesn't stop. He says, verse nine, thus God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me, and Jacob is explaining to you exactly what's going on here. And at the, it came about at the time when the flock were mating that I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled, and mottled, and then the angel of God, note this in your Bibles, the Malach Elohim, who is this? This is none other than Jesus. This is the visible God. And the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob. And he said, here I am, Hinani. And he said, lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. In other words, I got you, man. It's been me all along. That's the real truth. I mean, what a story. It wasn't actually dominant versus recessive gene theory. It wasn't science. It wasn't that Jacob was just such a, a, a master of animal husbandry that he's pulling this thing off. And it wasn't prenatal influence. It wasn't sticks in the trough after all. God was blessing the sheep and the goats of Jacob all along. It was the Lord. But, but he allowed Jacob to believe that his poplar plan was working, at least at first. He allowed him go, to go through the rigmarole of you know, stripping and striping the branches and putting them out there, and then the sheep would come, oh, it's, it's working. So it strips some more plants, and all the effort that went into this, God allowed him to do that, even though it was complete superstition. And God blessed anyway, and at some point, here in this six-year process of mating, he finally brought Jacob to the truth. And you know what? That's what he does. He's done it with me. I assume he's probably done it with you. Think about things that you used to believe that all of a sudden you realized were complete superstition or were just tradition or were false or were just social custom, but as you come across it in the word of God, you go, that's not legit. I really believe this. I'll tell you one. Share one from my own upbringing. I was brought up in an acapella singing church. I love singing acapella. I think singing acapella is beautiful, and I will credit the church that I was brought up in, in some of the most beautiful worship that I hear anywhere because everybody had to learn how to sing because that's all we had. And I don't have a problem with acapella singing, but there were people within that fellowship who said, if you sing with instrumental music, you are sinning. You are doing wrong. My parents never taught me that, but my head caught on to that. And there was a time in my life where I remember when Amy Grant first came out. Yes, I'm that old. 
And someone handed me a tape and I put it in. It's like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, whoa, whoa. I was very uncomfortable. <laughs> you can't worship with instruments. And then God taught me how to play guitar and I started doing, and I'm like, but, I, but you know, it's okay if I'm playing ACDC, but I really can't do that at church. <laughs> and, and so there's this conflict. In me. And Cheryl remembers, because when we first met, I was in the midst of this. I loved Christian music by that point, but you, worship, you can't worship with it. I mean, how stupid is that? And yet that was for me, and I, I, I say that how stupid is that, I'm talking about myself. Okay, I'm not, I'm not demeaning an entire fellowship of people because I cut my teeth on the word of God in the fellowship that I grew up in. And I know many people in that fellowship today who love Jesus, so, so don't get me wrong. I made some assumptions that were superstitious, that were wrong, that were not biblical. And through studying the word of God and seeing what the Bible really taught, I was like, oh, 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 okay. Why did God allow me to go all those years with that superstition, only then to all of a sudden say, oh, by the way, hey, I want you to look at the music David wrote. <laughs> Note here that, that Paul said, praise him with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And the word psalms, by the way, is salo in the Greek, which means to pluck. You don't pluck your throat. <laughs> I don't know, maybe someone's gifted to do that, but that's not normal worship. <laughs> And so I'm, all these things are just coming to light for me and that's same as Jacob. I'm putting out the sticks because that's what I knew. And it was superstition. And God goes, by the way, you know it's not the sticks. Kind of God's way of saying you're living in the sticks. <laughs> Move up. And I started to realize, and, and Jacob is realizing here. He has this dream. Guess what, Jacob? It was me all along. I've been the one blessing you. It wasn't your sticks it wasn't your popular plan, it was, it was me. And that is the patient grace of the Lord. That is the patient grace, if I can bring this all together, that is the patient grace of the good shepherd. The good shepherd. Patient grace designed to walk us gently into greater faith, where we trust him more. He doesn't just rip the poplar rods out from in front of us, you morons. No, he, he says, all right, do that for a while, I'll let you know what's up. And then when he comes and he begins to explain and we see and we understand. By the way, Laban's double dealing against Jacob put him in the cursing category of the Abrahamic covenant. Because those who bless you, I will bless, but those who curse you, I will curse. When Laban was favorable to Jacob, he was blessed. When he began to cheat Jacob, he was cursed and all his flocks were weak and wimbly and small. God is faithful to his promises. Faithful is he who calls you. He will also bring it to pass. And so bringing this together. You know what? Popular Christianity can get it wrong. Popular Christian thought can get it wrong. Sometimes it's just our cultural assumptions that we bring into the church. Sometimes it's our religious traditions. But you know what? Either way, it is just as bad as superstition. Now, trust me, I, I thought about that. Actually, when I wrote that down, religious tradition is as bad as superstition. Because that's a serious thing to say. I absolutely believe it's true. Why? Because when I put my faith in the tradition, I am no longer putting my faith in the Lord. When I put my faith in my assumptions, I've got to be right about this, who am I trusting? 
I'm trusting me instead of trusting in God. There was a day, as I said, when the whole idea of prenatal influence was believed even in this country as a legitimate practice. And then genetic science comes along and, and, and we begin to learn otherwise. Man, let go of your poplar, almondine, plain assumptions and just trust in the Lord. Trust in the good shepherd. Take God at his word and come to the trough and drink. Because the real application, I think, of this passage, as we see the story and understand the history, is that he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep of his hand. We're the sheep. Speckled, spotted, mottled, black. We're the sheep. And we're coming to the trough. We come to the trough to drink. On Wednesday night, we were talking about how, how many times in the Bible relationships were formed and lives were saved at a well. And we see this throughout Genesis. It's really interesting. It's five or six different times at least where, where someone comes together. Marriages are, are made at a well. You know, God met Hagar at the well and Abraham's servant Eliezer, we believe, he met Rebekah at the well and Isaac meets Rachel, comes to Rachel and Leah. He, he comes to a well. That's where he sees Rachel for the first time. And Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well, and her life was saved. And so I, I said something, we were talking about that and, and thinking, how beautiful is that? What a great picture. We meet Jesus at the well, and I was saying Wednesday night, man, come to the well, come to the well and drink. Same here, come to the trough and drink. And it hit me when I got home Wednesday night, whoa, wait a minute. I missed the final point of that. I didn't go far enough. I shared it with Cheryl. She said, well, tell him Sunday morning. And I said, but that's not my teaching Sunday morning. She said, tell him anyway, so I'm telling you. We don't come to the well. The well is within. He gives us the well. Jesus said very clearly to the Samaritan woman, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. I don't have to go anywhere for the well. The well is here. His spirit in me. Same with the trough. We don't go to the trough to drink, although we can gather and drink together, but we drink of the spirit of the Lord as we worship, like we said last week, in spirit and in truth. Because the well is here, the trough is here. Drink of his spirit. Feed on his word, and he will multiply his flock. Psalm 100, verse three. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And Jesus said, John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Listen, don't miss this. The good shepherd. Jesus is not only the good shepherd, he's the shrewd shepherd. It's not Jacob, it's Jesus we're talking about. Jesus is the shrewd shepherd. He knows how to work in your life, in my life, to increase faith when we don't even know what's happening. He knows how to sanctify his people. He knows how to draw people to him in not cunning ways, but sometimes clever. Not deceptive ways, but always discerning where a person's at, what a person needs, who needs to come in contact with him. He is the shrewd shepherd. He is the one in whom is hidden, Colossians 2 verse three, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's Jesus. He's the shrewd shepherd. And understand this, it wasn't stripes on a poplar rod that he used. It was stripes on his own back. 
Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The good shepherd doesn't set popular ideas in front of us. You know what he says? John 6, 40, this is the will of my father. Listen, here it is. This is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That's prenatal influence. You behold the son, you are born again, and you begin to look like the son. And that's what God does. And that's why Jesus says, behold the son. Don't behold the world. Don't behold the fears. Don't behold all the stuff going on around you. Don't worry about that. You behold the son. You keep your eyes on Jesus. And the Father will raise you up. He says, I myself will raise you up in the last day. Eyes on the Son, not on our superstitions. Jacob's learning. In fact, there's one more little side note on Jacob. The Lord has him in a sojourn of sanctification. That's something I've seen and learned in Jacob's life this time around. Man, he's just a man being sanctified. He's imperfect, he makes mistakes, he stumbles along the way, but God is just working this sojourning process of sanctification, getting Jacob to where he needs to be. And I love watching that because that's me. I'm being sanctified, I'm walking this journey and he's working in me and through me and changing me and he is so wise and he is so patient and he's so gentle. And again, Jacob's 97 and God is still leading him. He hasn't even had the wrestling match yet. That cracks me up. He's gonna be 97 years old. I'm gonna win this match, I gotcha. You know, we'll talk about that next week. Are you trusting in this season in the good shepherd who is also the wise shepherd who was fully aware what was coming on this world long before it happened? Let me say one last thing to you. If you are struggling with what's going on, if you're worried, if you're nervous, if you're concerned, I mean, man, walk, go to Costco, go to Safeway, look around. People, there's an air of, there's an air of fear. There's an air of worry. There's an air of dread because we don't know. We know what's happening, but we don't, we don't know how bad it's gonna be or where it's gonna go. And if you're in that place, here's my suggestion to you this morning. Go back to Bethel. Just go back to Bethel. Verse 13, I'm the God, he says, of Bethel where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. Go back to Bethel, back to the house of God, back to the place of first appearance. Think about that in your life. The place of first appearance, go back. I just wanna return. We sang the song. To the place of first love. Remember your first love. Or as Paul writes, Colossians 2, 6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. As you received him, do you remember? Do you remember when you gave your life to Jesus the first time, what it was like in that moment? Go there. Because that's where we need to be. That's where faith was birthed. That's where we gave our first cry of praise, our first cry of understanding. That's where we came into his, his, this relationship of truth. Go back to that place, being firmly rooted, built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. Go back to Bethel. And God will meet you there. And God will be with you right here. 
By the way, if you've never been to Bethel, the house of God, if you've never received Christ Jesus as Lord, there is no better season, no better time than right now. Let's pray together. Father, I ask your spirit just to encourage and comfort and strengthen. Lord, not only the Bridge Fellowship in our gathering here this morning, but would you just strengthen the faithful worldwide? Cause us to awaken in our faith. Teach us, Lord, how to set aside the silly superstitions that we still cling to. Help us, Father, to set apart ourselves unto you as, as holy, as, as your people, a people called out, a people called to be different, a people who are listening first and foremost to the voice of our shepherd. And help us to be a blessing in this season. Lord, I, I heard it said last week, someone said, why do I have to be alive at this time? And I just wanna say this morning, praise the Lord that we get to be. And I pray that you'd move in us and work through us and, and help us to bless, help us to love, help us to show simply by our comfort in the Lord and our trust in your spirit that we are not fearful. And when people ask why, Lord, give us words to speak the gospel truth. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has yet to receive Jesus Christ as Lord, would you just move, move in a heart? If, if that's you this morning, even as I'm praying, why don't you pray with me right now? And all of you who are followers of Jesus already, you can pray this again to him in our hearts before the Lord. Lord Jesus, we are sinners in need of a savior. And so Lord, I pray once again, believing that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I believe that you took the stripes on your back, that you went to the cross, that you died on the cross. I believe that you were buried and rose again from the dead, doing exactly what you said you would do. I believe now you call us to behold the Son. And so, Lord Jesus, this morning, I ask you to be Savior of my life. I ask you, Lord, to, to come in and take control. I submit to your authority today. In Jesus' name, amen. 